Welcome to the One and O podcast, hosted by Joe Cook and Brad Kellner. The One and O podcast is part of the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast channel. Today on the One and O podcast, we will talk about the Big Twelve All Conference teams that were just announced about five minutes before us starting recording, and then we'll talk about Texas Tech. Uh, Texas had a big forty nine twenty four win last Friday, but of course that kind of got lost in the scramble of the news and in, in the rest of the weekend with several coaching changes being made to Tom Herman's staff. Finally, we'll talk some Texas basketball and then get a little bit into the conference championship games around the country. Listen to both our show and Everyone Gets a Trophy, hosted by Kevin Dunn and Scipio Tex, a.k.a. Paul Wadlington. Please subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review and rating and let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about. And if you'd like to contact us directly, send us emails at everyonegetsatrophy, with the number one, at gmail.com. Again, that's everyone gets a trophy at gmail.com. And after a pinch hitting for you last week <laughs> with uh, talking about our sponsors, hopefully Tom McKay and Altstat Beer are happy with my job. I'll let you do it because you've, you've got you've got the you've got it down to a science. Uh, I'm sure you did fine. But yes, this podcast is brought to you by Audiovisual Consultations. AVConsultations.com, the website 512-255-8678. The phone number to call to get the home TV setup of your dreams. It's the best gift you can give yourself this holiday season. And also Oldstat Beer. It is German beer made in Central Texas, the absolute best beer you can find across Central Texas. And Oldstat's actually expanding to the DFW Metroplex and to Houston as well. So if you're in one of the uh, the big three or three of the big four cities in the state of Texas, make sure you're trying some Oldstat Beer this holiday season. So we've got, uh, like I just mentioned, we've got the newest All Big 12 football awards. And of the individual awards, Offensive Player of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, Offensive Defensive Newcomer, Offensive Defensive Freshman Special Team, Offensive Lineman, Defensive Lineman, Coach of the Year, there are no Longhorns. There are several Texans, uh, but there are no Longhorns. There are a couple of Longhorns who made it onto the first team, All Big 12 team, None of them play defense, which I don't think should be any sort of surprise no. as well. Uh, the first team Longhorns were Devin Duvernay, who joined Denzel Mims of Baylor and C.D. Lamb of Oklahoma as all Big 12 wide receivers. And Zach Shackelford was listed as a first team lineman, I believe, by the league's coaches. Uh, who And it was independent of position. It was just listed as a lineman. So it doesn't mean he was above Creed Humphrey, but he made the team along with Creed Humphrey. Uh, there were some Longhorns on the second team as well. Uh, Brandon Jones, he made the se- second team all-conference defense uh, as a defensive back. And Samuel Cosme made the second team all-conference offensive line. Other than that, that's it. That's pretty much it. I'm not arguing that there should be more. I'm just saying that's pretty embarrassing at the University of Texas, especially in a down year for the Big 12 that you could only get four guys on the first and second team in this conference, that's bad, especially when you consider how well the Longhorns recruit. Eh, Texas brings in more talent than anybody in this conference outside of Oklahoma. You see these lists, you see these teams scattered with Oklahoma Sooners, and there's only four Texas Longhorns. And as you mentioned, Joe, no player of the year awards or newcomer of the year awards for anybody on UT this year. And it's hard to argue that when you go seven and five and just five and four in Big Twelve play, 
you don't deserve a whole lot of postseason praise, and the Longhorns definitely did not get any of that today. The only guy on defense, other than Brandon Jones, I think he had a good good argument, but guys like Greg Eisworth at Iowa State, Colby Peel at Oklahoma State, and Jeff Gladney, Trevon Morig uh, at TCU, those are some really good defensive backs. Brandon Jones played well, but he was on a defense to where that didn't play well, uh, and often was not really in a position to make a lot of individual plays. He had a couple interceptions, of course, but you know this the defense just really wasn't – nobody was set up to succeed. Uh, I think even the best player on the defense, Joseph Osai, he had so many different roles this year. He never really excelled in just one, and there was no way he was going to be better than, any, than uh, Garrett Wallow, Jordan Brooks, who's a Butkus finalist, and Kenneth Murray. Uh, maybe he had a, a case for – uh, linebacker, he was listed as an honorable mention linebacker, but and I, I I think the conference has it down. I believe this is coaches who select this, and mm-hmm. I can't really disagree with anything. I do like offensive player of the year being Chuba Hubbard. I do like defensive player of the year being James Lynch. I understand Jalen Hurts being the offensive newcomer of the year, and I completely agree with Matt Rule being coach of the year. There's nothing really that stands out about this list that looks controversial at all at this point. I can't think of any major snubs right now. Yeah. Except, no, I, I really can't think of anything right now. And that really, like you mentioned earlier, speaks to the quality of what Texas did this year or the lack thereof. Nobody on either side of the ball was put in a position to make play after play and get this notoriety needed in order to make an all-conference team like this. Yeah, I'm glad Chuba Hubbard was named Offensive Player of the Year. You know, sometimes these big-time awards, whether it's in the individual conference or it's in all of college football, it just becomes a best quarterback type of award. Chuba Hubbard dominated, man, one of the best running backs in all of college football this year. Even though it wasn't a great season for Oklahoma State, he deserved the honor. And same thing with James Lynch. I mean, I Definitely wasn't a household name going into the year, and I would guess he's still not a household name in the college football world, but everybody in Big 12 country knows who James Lynch is. I mean, he was dominant. He was the anchor of that really, really good Baylor defensive front, the number one defense in the conference this year, and uh, one of the top defenses in all of college football, which is tough to do in this conference. And you're right, Matt Rule, was there any doubt that that guy should be coach of the year? Going from one win just two years ago to an 11-win season, a chance to win the conference championship this weekend. The job that he's done in Waco, it can't be oversold. I mean, it's been phenomenal. It's been incredible what Matt Rule has been able to do in just three years in Waco. Very deserving of this award. And, yeah, like I said, I mean, Texas, they went 7-5, and five, just a game over 500 in this conference. There's not a whole lot of controversy. Maybe you can make a case with a guy here, a guy there. Maybe he should have been on the second team or honorable mention or something like that, but uh, a disappointing season, and that's why we're about to talk about the things we're about to talk about, Joe. I do have one question for you. Sure. As For both of your teams, or at least the teams you follow most in this conference, who do you think had more votes for Coach of the Year, Tom Herman or Les Miles? Who do I think had more votes? I'd be surprised if either had any, but I would guess Les Miles. Uh, I mean, the expectations for Texas. Texas started as a top ten team this year. Uh, the expectations for were them were not to go seven and five. Now, I don't know what the expectations were for Kansas, and they finished the year at three and nine with just one conference win, which is not very good. But 
that's probably better than what I expected going into the season. So, yeah, I would I would uh, give the nod to Les Miles if we're ranking the jobs that coaches in the Big 12 did in 2019. I'd probably side with Les over Tom Herman. And you could maybe make a case that Tom Herman is 10th out of 10 in terms of coaches in this conference for this year alone, just based off expectations, based off perception versus reality. You could make a case that no one did a worse job with his team than Tom Herman. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair way to look at it. And that's why, like you mentioned, it leads into what the main topic of conversation is going to be. Sunday, most of the news broke that uh, Texas will make changes on its assistant coaching staff. In the press release, Tom Herman says, this is kind of funny to me, after taking time, looking back, and evaluating the season in its totality, I am very disappointed in our performance in a number of areas in 2019. Seven and five will never be our standard at Texas, and I take full responsibility for any and all of our shortcomings and know we need to do a better job coaching across the board. With that said, I do believe the future is bright, and I have decided to make some changes to our staff as we head into bowl preparation and look to finish strong in the final weeks of fall recruiting. So, that's the end of that quote. Yeah, he I takes full responsibility, and oh yeah, here are some changes. Yeah. Corby Meekins reassigned to an off-field role. Drew Maringer let go. Uh, Todd Orlando let go. And Tim Beck no longer will be called the offensive coordinator, but is still in a role in an assistant coach for the time being. Yeah, he'll be the quarterback coach, at least for the bowl game for Texas, right? We'll wait and see if he sticks around, and we'll wait and see if more coaching moves are made by Tom Herman after the bowl game. Uh, I did like that statement from Tom Herman more than some of the statements I heard from him and the players after the Texas Tech game on Friday, where you had Tom Herman talking about how this program hasn't had three winning seasons in a while, acting like that's some sort of accomplishment. Now, that's true. It's been a terrible decade at Texas. We all know that, but come on, man. I mean, don't sit here and say the standard is not this and then brag about having three winning seasons when two of them include just seven wins. And then Sam Ellinger after the game saying that Rome wasn't built in a day. And I think if you asked three, I think if you asked Longhorn fans three years ago if they would be okay with seven wins with a chance to get to eight in a bowl game, like that would be pretty good. That's not pretty good. Like that is ridiculous. And I, I think that's Sam Ellinger just being a good soldier and whatever. But I hope that's not the message that's being preached within the locker rooms down at the 40 Acres. Like that this was some sort of decent season just because they beat Texas Tech to guarantee a non-losing season, which, by the way, would have been the fifth in the last 10 years here at Texas. So sadly, that has become a little bit of an accomplishment. But man, at least Tom Herman took some of the blame and at least he's making some of the moves. We've speculated it a ton that coaching changes need to be made. But hearing some of that stuff on Friday really made me pause and think, oh my God, this team doesn't think they just did anything good, did they? Like, I couldn't stand to hear the stuff that we heard. And there were hit pieces and all kinds of crap being written about this team over the weekend. Uh, I'm glad what happened on Sunday finally happened because uh, all the speculation was laid to rest and uh, moves that needed to be made were actually made. And once again, there might be more coming. And, and to that point, I think... I think everybody inside Moncrief kind of realized, oh, <laughs> what did I just say? Because yeah. as quickly as those uh, statements were made and the, I guess, disappointment that you shared with a lot of people kind of spread around the Longhorn community, not only did Sam Ellinger, but I think also Tom Herman and even Chris Del Conte may have uh, made some like, oh, what I really meant was and, and clarified. And 
think they realize uh, I, I can't I can't be saying stuff like this, especially right after the season we just put. Together. Rome wasn't built in a day. Like when you're the guy in front of everyone on national TV, clamoring, we're, we're back, back. Mm-hmm. after the Sugar Bowl victory on the first day of this year. You can't sit here at the end of the year after going seven and five and say Rome wasn't built in a day. And people will get on me and say, oh, he's just a college kid. He's just a 21-year-old kid. He's 21. He's a smart kid. He knows better than that. And he actually went on his own Instagram the next day to release a statement saying that 7-5 and five is not acceptable. So I'm with you. What you just said, I think people realized pretty quickly after the game, like, oh, God, yeah, that, that didn't make sense. I shouldn't have said that. I don't want to give the perception that what happened is okay at UT. Uh, now the changes that are made. Todd Orlando, are you at all surprised, disappointed? I mean, we knew going into the final month of the season that Todd Orlando was coaching for his job. Like The Kansas game was inexcusably bad, and the defense had fallen on some really, really tough times, one of the worst in all of college football and just about every statistical measure that you could fr- you could find. But the Longhorns defensively, at least in terms of scoring defense, were much better in the month of November. They didn't give up even 25 points in any of the last four games of the season. You know, once this defense started to get some dudes back from injury, they looked a little bit more disciplined and looked to be improved a little bit. Are you at all surprised, despite the final month of what you saw from T.O., that he ended up getting the ax? I, I am not. I, I really thought that the on-field performance made the decision very easy. Now, maybe Tom Herman's longtime connection with Todd Orlando uh, going all the way back to Houston, bringing him to Texas with him, I thought maybe that might be a a hurdle, but I didn't think it would be any. I didn't think it'd be a wall or a block or a blockade uh, to allowing that to happen. Uh, I didn't even think any sort of money issue. Remember, he got an extension and a raise right after his first season. I didn't even think that would be an issue. I think, I think plays like the blitz against LSU, the blitz against OU, and even the blitzes against TCU. Uh, kind of sealed his fate without, you know, without the last month really making that much of a difference. And then, you know, the other thing was, and I think we mentioned that uh, this on this, I think we mentioned this on the podcast several times, is that Tom Herman has said over and over that the style of defense that Todd Orlando runs was the one that gave his style of offense the most fits. And Iowa State, uh Kansas State, to an extent, Texas Tech, and Baylor all kind of run similar offenses to what Tom Herman does. So it's not the air raid that really stresses things in space or anything like that, which Todd Orlando struggled mightily with, but rather it was offenses that Todd Orlando's done well against in the past. And he did okay, but that was probably his best work all year is doing okay. Whereas against some of the other teams like Oklahoma State, who – Granted, some turnovers really didn't help his case there, but Oklahoma, LSU, even Louisiana Tech, there were some, a few warning signs with the spread offense they ran that they were able to accumulate as many yards as they did. Those last three games were definitely his best performances of the year, but that doesn't mean they were very good at all. I mean, it's very simple, right? Despite the last month of the year, this was the 108th-ranked defense in college football. They still missed more tackles than anybody in college football. And Todd Orlando, I mean, he didn't adjust his scheme to suit his talent. Players were not developed, and I don't think Todd Orlando gives you a whole lot on the recruiting trail as well. I mean, his defense just struggled to make plays. They struggled to make tackles. The play calling, as you mentioned, the random blitzing from Hutto and Round Rock and Buda and all over the place, it just didn't make sense. 
yeah, I think he deserved to go. I think he had to go. Uh, just his lack of adjustments would be the biggest thing for me. I mean, I know he dealt with a lot of injuries and inexperience, but this just felt like this defense kind of progressively got worse during the Todd Orlando tenure, and I just don't think – I think the writing was on the wall, maybe going into the final month of the season. And Tom Herman knows. Like, he's going to be on the hot seat going into the 2020 year. He knows how important the changes he makes to his coaching staff are for this offseason. It didn't work with Todd Orlando this year. He's not going to go into next year putting his faith in the guy who almost has him on the hot seat this year, if you know what I'm saying. So there were some people maybe a little bit surprised. Todd Orlando had one more year on his contract, but uh, I think it was a move that had to be made, and I think it was the right move. And now we're talking about, and just to put things into perspective, Joe, since 2010, <laughs> how about I, know, I already know where this is going. Yeah, whoever's hired as the offensive coordinator. So Tim Beck got demoted. You mentioned that. He's still the quarterback's coach. I'm curious to see if Tim Beck sticks around beyond this year. Uh, I think Texas would take Tim Beck to just be the quarterback's coach. But, man, Beck's been an offensive coordinator at some big programs. I think he could find a better job elsewhere if he wanted it. And I, I wouldn't blame him for doing something like that. It's kind of embarrassing to take a demotion and just stay at the same job that you had. But whoever's hired as the offensive coordinator, probably fair to assume he's going to call the plays. That'll be the ninth offensive play caller for Texas since 2010. And whoever's hired as the defensive coordinator to replace Todd Orlando, once again, probably fair to assume that he's going to call the plays. He'll be the eighth defensive play caller since 2010, if you include Craig Niver, who's going to be calling the plays in the interim for the bowl game for Texas. So needless to say... 17 combined play callers in less than a decade, probably not a good recipe for sustained success. Yeah, and this was something Tom Herman really, at least when he showed up at Texas and following his first and second year, really wanted to try and change. It's just that he didn't bring the right people, obviously, in order to change that. He he and Chris Del Conte have made talking points about how, you know, we this this school saw presidents, men's basketball, women's basketball, baseball, athletic, multiple athletic directors leave, and that's a big factor into why you've seen so many of the on-field disappointments in this past decade, and Tom Herman wanted to try and change that, at least starting with his football program. And I'm sure UT President Greg Fenvis and Athletic Director Chris Del Conte wanted to do the same. But like I just mentioned, he didn't bring the right guys in order to be able to do that, and now he's in this situation where – because he didn't bring those right guys, he's got to go find these replacements, got to try and find upgrades and find somebody who will make his team have a ceiling higher than a team that loses four games every year at least. So who are the right guys? I mean, there's all sorts of speculation. You guys at Inside Texas have mentioned a couple of targets for both offensive and defensive coordinator positions. And once again, I mean, it, there might be more changes to the coaching staff coming after National Signing Day and or after the bowl game, whatever bowl game that is that Texas plays in. Uh, we'll find that out on Sunday of this week, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, what do we start with the offense? Yeah, well, let's go defense because okay. we need to go through the offensive changes next. All right, yeah, good call. Good so call. the main name right now seems to be Chris Ash. He was a guy that came in and uh, spoke, or uh, at least was reported to be helping out with the team, at least during Oklahoma week. Uh, he's a guy that Tom Herman has experience with coaching at Ohio State, I believe during those national title years. He, along with Luke Fickle, Cincinnati's current head coach, I believe were responsible for that defense. Now, Ash went to Rutgers. Um, you know, you can either go to a group of five job and grow there, or you can go to a power five job there. And uh, that, that defensive brain chest had divergent opinions. Luke Fickle went to Cincinnati and is now – 
fighting for the group of five New Year's Six bid, and Chris Ash doesn't have a job right now. Uh, so that tells you a little bit about Rutgers football um, and the decision that that was that that decision. Uh, but Chris Ash is a guy who's a little bit different, I believe, than Todd Orlando. Uh, he'll run the four down lineman. He'll use that instead of the even front. Uh, and he's called good defenses before, um, but he hasn't called them in the Big 12. Yeah. And Big 12, and I guess you could even argue the Pac-12 or two leagues with some of the brightest minds and most daring innovators on offense right now. Uh, not in the Big Ten, not in the SEC, and, and unless you're Clemson, not really in the ACC either. So that's a big question. Uh, but at this point, he kind of seems to be the only main name right now really coming out and being mentioned by multiple places, including inside Texas. But and this can kind of we can either go into this a little bit more or trans- transition to the offensive side, but it kind of seems like Tom Herman's priority at this point is to figure out who the offensive coordinator is going to be. Yeah, you know, I, I want to stick with Chris Ash for a second because I tend to agree with you. Like, all of the reading that I've done makes it seem like Chris Ash is the heavy favorite, the front runner to be the defensive coordinator for this football team moving forward. A couple of things why that excites me and a couple of reasons why that scares me a little bit. We'll start with the good. We'll go glass half full. Uh, you mentioned the four down front, which... It's not necessary at all to be successful in college football. I mean, you look at Baylor, you look at Iowa State, the two top defenses in this league, both of them employ three down defensive fronts. I just think the personnel for this Texas team, definitely this year, but also going into 2020, I think that more suits what Chris Ash is trying to do. So I do like that. What I also like is some of the numbers from Chris Ash's five years as a defensive coordinator. These are scoring defense statistics ranked among college football. So Chris Ash was the defensive coordinator at Wisconsin in 2011 and 2012. His defense is ranked 13th and 17th in the country in scoring defense, allowing less than 20 points per game both years. He did have one year at Arkansas after some coaching changes were made at Wisconsin. He went to Arkansas 88th in scoring defense his one year there. That wasn't great. But when Chris Ash was hired at Ohio State to be the defensive coordinator, his first year there, they had the 26th-ranked scoring defense in the country, allowed 22 points per game. And in his second year, Ohio State had the third-ranked defensive uh, scoring defense in college football and gave up only 15 points per game. So they got a touchdown better from year one to year two, and they didn't really drop off from year one to year two during his time at Wisconsin. That's been a huge problem at Texas. Right, Defensive coordinators, whether it's Manny Diaz, whether it's Vance Bedford, whether it's Todd Orlando, they've all been great year one. The problem is there's been a drop-off from year one to year two, and then obviously a lethal drop-off from year two to year three. At least Chris Ash's track record doesn't show major drop-offs. They actually show improvement in terms of his scoring defenses at his previous stop. So he does have some skins on the wall. And another thing that excites me a little bit about Chris Ash, if he is the guy, Remember on the Fox kickoff pregame show a couple of weeks ago, Urban Meyer was talking about rugby tackling and how much of an impact that made for his Ohio State defense. And that video went viral and everyone was like, oh, man, Urban Meyer's a genius. Like, that's so great. Maybe that's something everybody should try. It was Chris Ash who inspired and encouraged Urban Meyer to do that. Like, he was the defensive coordinator at Ohio State when Urban Meyer started doing that. That was Chris Ash's idea. So maybe that would come to Austin as well. Uh, he's got some skins on the wall with that deal, so that gets me excited. But there are a couple of things that scare me about Chris Ash, and the biggest one 
He's a buddy of Tom Herman. He's a buddy of Tom Herman, and that's... We've seen that with Tom Herman before, right? You talked about the guys he brought in when he took over three years ago. They were all his friends for the most part, and those are the guys who were getting fired because they couldn't get the job done. I don't know that bringing in a friend is a good idea. I think this program needs some guys to go against Tom Herman a little bit. It needs some outside influence instead of just agreeing with the head coach too much. I don't want to bring in a guy to run this defense who is just going to be cool with Tom Herman and not disagree with what he has to say. I think that sometimes hiring your friends gets you in trouble, and I think that is kind of why Tom Herman is going to be on the hot seat in general. So maybe Chris Ash is one of the best names out there, but I sure as hell hope that Tom Herman and Chris Del Conte and whoever's making this decision are actually going through the entire process. They're vetting all of the top candidates out there instead of just settling for a guy that Tom Herman happens to like more than the others. Exactly, and I think you – I don't know really what to add other than, yeah, exactly, you hit it right on the head. But I think that is the right transition into the offensive side of the ball because at this point it appears like he is willing to listen to outside mm-hmm. voices – uh, you know, we've got, you know, uh, Drew Maringer obviously was was let go. Uh, Tim Beck was reassigned, as was Corby Meekins. Corby won't be an assistant coach anymore. And like we mentioned, it looks like the offensive coordinator search is the thing that is really moving a lot quicker than the defensive coordinator search. And it looks like it is Graham Harrell is the prime target right now. That's an air raid guy who went to USC from North Texas. We can start in Denton first. When he left, he left a season that had Mason Fine, a senior quarterback. Uh, it had a lot of potential and promise for the Mean Green. And the current head coach there, Seth Luttrell, just fired both coordinators. Yep. So you've got positive evidence there that whatever Graham Harrell was doing at North Texas was a big deal because when he left, it cratered. Then you can go ahead and point and look at his USC season. This was a this is a program no matter what happens with Clay Helton it is on a significant downslope because of recruiting. That recruiting class that recruiting right now every recruiting class in the Big 12 in the 247 composite is ranked ahead of USC Are right now. Are you serious? Yeah, even the Jayhawks. Wow. So I did not know that. Yeah. And they're still considering keeping Clay Helton out Ex- there. Exactly. Oh my. So the recruiting's dead. The program hasn't bottomed out completely in terms of talent. It still had a good year this year. It finished second in the Pac-12 South. Yep. They beat the Pac-12 South champions, and a lot of that had to do not only with what Graham Harrell did, but what Graham Harrell did with the second-string quarterback, Heaton Slovis, after JT Daniels went down, and I think it's after – I can't remember what order. because no, he's Fink, the third stringer because Matt Fink, Fink was played, the, yep. and I think Slovis took over. They put up huge numbers this year under Slovis, and not only that – you know, they didn't really have much of a running back there. I think they had the injury bug bite them. But Michael Pittman is a Bolitnikoff Award finalist, had over 1,200 yards. They figured out how to make use of those elite receivers. Pittman, Amon Ross, St. Brown, I forget the other one's name. They made use of those guys and helped Clay Helton maybe get to this purgatory point of 8-4, and four, do you keep them or not, A lot of, due largely to Graham Harrell's offense with the backup quarterback. Yeah, I mean, USC this year, 18th in the country in total offense, and they were 37th in scoring offense. I know 37th doesn't necessarily get folks excited, but uh, Graham Harrell's done a hell of a job wherever he's gone. He's young. He's only 34 years old, 
But uh, I think he's an up-and-coming offensive mind, a great offensive mind, and he's learned from some of the best coaches, too, which I think gets you pretty excited. No Joe Brady. We're giving up on Joe Brady. You know, the first reports were that Joe Brady and Graham Harrell were kind of the top two targets. I was always of the belief that LSU is going to do whatever the hell they can to keep that guy around. They're having their best offensive season in school history. Probably going to make the college football playoff. Uh, I figured they weren't going to let Joe Brady go. Is that kind of where Texas is at right now? I am very skeptical of any Joe Brady. Why Why would he leave? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I know he's passing game coordinator right now and paid as such, but he's the one calling plays. Steve Insminger never wanted to be offensive coordinator there. The most reluctant OC, I think, ever in the history of offensive coordinators. That's probably going to – it sounds like LSU has plans to keep him, has been planning to keep him ever since – they kind of blew up this year and wanted to get ahead of the curve. I am very skeptical that Joe Brady is on is is a realistic option. He may be somebody that Texas reaches out to, but I don't know if he's going to reciprocate yeah. that sort of interest. They'll pony up. They'll give him the title change, and they'll give him a big-time promotion as well. And Ed Ogeron, the coach of LSU, was asked about Joe Brady recently, and he's like, oh, yeah, now we've got a plan. We've got a plan for him. So, man, it's crazy. Joe Brady's only 30, and it's weird to me. A little bit weird to me. I mean, LSU's offense is awesome. They're number two in total offense, number two in scoring offense this year. They're the number two team in the country. Joe Brady's 30 years old, and he's only been there for one year. And everyone's just ready to anoint this guy as, like, the, the second coming. And every Texas fan, I think at least most Texas fans, want him to be the number one target for the Longhorns. He's got less skins on the wall than Graham Harrell does. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's an interesting thing to me. But I'm with you. I feel like Graham Harrell is this team's top target. We'll see what happens, right, if Clay Hilton stays, if he goes, if that affects whether or not Graham Harrell is interested to at least listen to what Texas has to say. You know, the the common thought would be, well, Texas can just pay whoever they want, and we know that's the case. But you're going up against LSU and USC, who are two programs who can also pay just about whatever they want as well. So uh, maybe it's a tough sell, but I, I feel like Graham Harrell is going to be the guy. Now... Let's go with this first. Let's go glass half full again first, Joe, because I also want to ask what would happen if Graham Harrell says no, or, uh, yeah, if both Joe Brady and Graham Harrell say no, who would be next in line? If Graham Harrell is this team's next offensive coordinator, which it seems like he's the top target right now, what about his relationship with Tom Herman? Because Graham Harrell's an air raid guy. Now, he's not Mike Leach, even though he was coached by Mike Leach. Like, he appreciates the value of the run game a little bit. But Tom Herman is power spread guy. He wants to run the ball 30 to 40 times a game if he can. That's the way he wants to beat you. USC, I think 100-something, 100, 100 near 120 in the country in terms of rushing attempts this year. Uh, USC threw the ball nearly 60% of the time this year versus running the football. I'm curious how that marriage would work between a head coach who everybody kind of assumes it's his offense, right, with Tom Herman, who likes to run the ball, versus an air raid guy who generally sides with passing the ball. I'm curious if Tom Herman would be willing to allow Graham Harrell to run his offense or if it would be some sort of combination of the two, just how that would work. And, you know, you hope they wouldn't butt heads too much to the point where it would cause some problems for this team. Although he's air raid, I think Graham Harrell understands the importance of running the ball. I Now... The personnel and situation he was dealt at USC may not have helped him as much this year, but looking at his time at North Texas, in 2016, Jeffrey Wilson had 936 yards on the ground. In 2017, Jeffrey Wilson had 1,215 yards on the ground. 
And in 2018, uh, DeAndre Torrey, who seems to be the guy that took over for Wilson, had 977 yards on the ground. So while the air raid may emphasize passing first, it doesn't mean that they're going to abandon the run game. I think in as far as the air raid tree goes, the only guy who runs it in its pure, distilled, pass-pass-pass form is Mike Leach at this point. Even Gundy, even Lincoln Riley, uh, Sonny Cumbie, Graham Harrell, all these guys understand, Dana Holgerson, all they, they all understand that you do need to have a run game component to match with your air raid system. I think the big question is, yes, will Tom Herman let Graham Harrell kind of take everything over or, or most, over to, most of it over, and will that play out? I think that was a huge concern a co- this past year with Ed Ogeron because of how much he meddled in his previous offensive coordinator's hire with Matt Canada. He thought he did not think highly of all the motions in Matt Canada's offense. And when they hired Joe Brady, I'm sure that was a huge concern. Is he going to meddle again? Well, he obviously did not with how much they've been in the shotgun and running four wide this often. Tom Herman needs to show that he can do that. I think he's capable of it because he has, I mean, let's not, I don't think it's unfair to still think that Tom Herman's a good offensive coach. No, not at all. But he needs some he needs some fresh ideas. And I think the last four weeks of the season prove that. I think adding an air raid guy can bring that in, help the wide receivers get into some space plays instead of some winning matchups plays, and really help take off the offense. Oh, by the way, you've got a senior quarterback just like LSU did this past year at your disposal if you come to Texas. Yeah, that's a good point right there. And there's plenty of big-time coaches. Ed Ogeron is one. Dabo Sweeney is one that don't call plays on either side of the football. And they've taken uh, they've taken their foot off a little bit to allow their great coordinators to kind of do their thing. And I think that's the only way you're going to convince a Graham Harrell or a Joe Brady to come to Texas because these guys are smart. They realize that Tom Herman's probably on the hot seat going into 2020. They don't want to leave their jobs to walk into a potential one-and-done type of situation. I think that's something Tom Herman's going to have to relinquish. right? When he's offering guys these jobs and he's trying to convince them to come to UT, it's going to have to be like, hey, man, I will let you control this deal. Like That's my way of convincing you to come here in a potential sinking ship. So it'll be tough because we know Tom Herman's a little bit arrogant, and most coaches are, and that's fine. You want your coaches to be a little bit arrogant. You want them to think that they're smart and, and know more than you, but it's tough to convince other coaches to come coach for you in the situation that Tom Herman is in if you're not willing to swallow some pride and uh, and give up a little bit of your responsibility. And I hope Tom Herman is smart enough to realize that's what he needs to do because so many details within this program are just falling through the cracks. So that was really exemplified with penalties, with special teams miscues, uh, with clock management issues throughout the year. Like That's the stuff that Tom Herman really needs to focus on. So whether it's Graham Harrell or somebody else, I think he needs to give that guy, I don't know about full autonomy of the offense, but he needs to let that guy kind of do his thing on the offensive side of the football to really help Texas be more successful all around. I'll give you one name that, looking this year, uh, if Brady and Harold don't end up being the guys, should be on Texas's radar, and that is Kalen DeBoer. DeBoer. I, I can't pronounce names very well. <laughs> How much Indiana football did you watch this year? I was going to say, that's uh, a couple of games, not a whole lot. They got off to a good start, and then they started playing some good teams in the last month of the season, so they fell off a little bit record-wise. But you know, they had some decent offensive numbers in the Big Ten this year. 
They is won, that a name? They won eight games this year. Is that at, a name that people Indiana. are talking about? He's he's a he's a guy that gained some popularity this year with what they were able to do on offense. So eh, it's just an I don't know if that's somebody Texas has reached out to, but it should definitely be a name for them to consider. And I think finally a ter- or like a tertiary thing we mentioned about uh, Corby Meekins and Drew Maringer. Now you can go hire maybe I don't know one wide receiver coach. Yeah. And maybe give your upcoming defensive coordinator another guy on his side of the ball, considering Tom Herman, you're already an offensive guy. Of course, like we just mentioned, we don't want meddling or things that will ruin any sort of collaborative relationship between this new offensive coordinator, but you still have to maintain a staff balance. And if you've got six guys already coaching on the offensive side of the ball, I don't think you need your help as the seventh. It should be six and what six and five of the eleven total coaches, yeah. and I, I and honestly, it should be kind of five and a half, five and a half. But although we know Herman has his offensive background, yeah, it's amazing how bad this offense was, considering how many guys were coaching. Plus the analysts, the Larry Fedoras and the Andre Coleman's of the world who were brought in, also Greg Davis, who was brought in at times in an unofficial capacity to at least uh, sit in on some practices for Texas football. It's amazing. Maybe maybe too many cooks in the kitchen, but. I'm with you on the wide receivers coach thing. I mean, you had two wide receivers coaches and your receivers sucked. Like, I know Devin DuVernay had a great year. Colin Johnson, when he was healthy, had a pretty good year too. But those guys are seniors, and they won't be here next year. And we saw little to no development with any other wide receiver on this Texas team. I mean, so much inconsistency with Eagles, with Jake Smith, with John Burt, uh, with Malcolm Epps with Washington, with Woodard. I mean, there was just no consistency with anybody outside of Duvernay and Colin Johnson. I thought going into the year, Joe, that the wide receiver room would be one of the most talented position groups for Texas. And that clearly was not the case because nobody was getting developed. Now there's reports about Drew Merringer that he was sabotaging the coaching staff. I don't know how much of that is true. Like, for me, he should have been fired on merit alone because the wide receivers have been bad here at Texas. And as much as we all love Colin Johnson, it doesn't feel like he developed as much as he probably should have developed during his time at Texas. But uh, if you throw in all of the other stuff, even if a couple of the rumors are true about Maringer on the recruiting trail or disagreeing with Tom Herman or whatever, then that guy absolutely had to go. Yeah, it, I I, th- I agree with you. It was a merit thing. I don't think there was a reason to uh, kick a guy's ass on his way out the door, which is what it kind of kind of seemed like. But uh, it was a change that needed to be made. Uh, I looked at Coach V, uh, the guy we have on Inside Texas who provides post-game grades. And aside from the top guys of Duvernay, Johnson, and I guess I'd put Eagles in there, there was not a lot of great grades this year. It shows you that there was some good – talent at the top and that there's some you know maybe talent in the waiting in the wings but it was not given a good chance to show that off this year and I think a lot of that has to do with the coaching for sure yeah and we'll see what happens right with these position coaches you know I think Tom Herman wants to keep some guys on his staff but if he brings in a new offensive and defensive coordinator I should say when he brings in a new offensive and defensive coordinator those guys might want to supply their own position coaches as well so we'll see I mean, right now, only two coaches fired, only, only two coaches fired and only two more demoted for Texas, but there could be more 
whether it's Tom Herman's choice or whether it's the new coordinator's choice after the conclusion of the bowl game. And by the way, there were some folks, and I think this has been explained by you guys at Inside Texas and by us at the Horn, and I think most Longhorn fans get this, but maybe some people a little surprised with the timing of the decisions that were made. The fact that it was only two days after the regular season seems a little bit quick, and it happened before a bowl game. The timing has everything to do with recruiting, Mm -hmm. right? We're recording this on December 4th. The early national signing period, basically NSD number one, is two weeks from now on December 18th. And even though the players are kind of off right now and everyone's just, if you're not playing this weekend, you're just getting ready for your bowl game. The coaches are on the recruiting trail. They're out and about doing in-home visits, and you want to make sure you have guys who you expect to be on this staff moving forward, being the guys going out to recruit your players. Uh, Another move that was made, Brian Carrington, who's the director of recruiting, he was kind of temporarily promoted to a full-time assistant coach basis, so he could go out and help recruit, which I think is a good thing for Texas. So that kind of explains the timing. I know there were some folks who had questions about that. That's why the moves were made as quickly as they were made. But you guys at IT have been speculating. Once again, there there might be more to come uh, after the conclusion of this bowl game. Man, I'm ready to not have to talk about new coaches every year. I know. Uh, ever ever since we show up in this city, it just <laughs> it's it's pain, pain, pain. I mean, this whole decade, man, it's just it's it's just absolutely insane. So, uh, anything else we want to hit on the coaching front? You know, maybe maybe Jeff Scott's another candidate, the Clemson co-offensive coordinator. Uh, we'll see. I feel like Graham Harrell, though, is the top guy for offense, and I feel like Chris Ash is the top guy for defense. We're going to keep recording these podcasts over the next couple of weeks, so we're sure you know new developments will come out amongst these coaching searches uh, at UT. Anything else that we need to mention, though, in that regard, Joe? I think we can kind of tie it back with uh, at least we're not covering – USC. Yeah, what an S storm that is, right? I, I think I've kind of had this thought today that I think USC is showing us what Charlie Strong's fourth year would have looked like. Mm. You've got recruiting. I don't think completely. so. You think Charlie would have won eight games in year no, four? Well, that was his third year. Where, oh, you're right. It was three for Clay Hilton. Yeah, so I think this is uh, that's what it looks like. You got this new ish offensive guy. Uh, you put a bunch of pressure on your young quarterbacks. Uh, your defensive coordinator has been not great at all. You are a recruiter, uh, but you've got, and you've got some friends in some high places apparently. Hmm. Uh, but you've got, you know, president on your side. You, it's it's just and every you got fans just completely out recruits not responding at all. I think this is what Charlie Strong's fourth year would have looked like had he gotten it. But Texas made the decision to go with the current guy and. Now we're at where we're at. And South Florida also didn't give Charlie Strong a fourth year, which is a bummer. I was hoping Charlie Strong would be back for the season opening game next year, Texas and USF, uh, mainly because I wanted an easy win. Still should be a win for Texas, but would have felt pretty good if Charlie was coaching on the other sideline. Uh, real quick, you brought up the word recruiting, talking about USC. Uh, do you expect, I mean, we lost... We saw one decommitment, Van Fillinger, from the mm-hmm. state of Utah, who had been speculated for the last couple of weeks that he may be looking elsewhere, but he decommitted after the Todd Orlando news broke this past Sunday. Uh, Texas currently has the number 7 class, at least according to 24-7 sports. Do you expect more attrition? Any serious changes? I mean, uh, maybe one name or two. Any expectations? Any craziness over the next two weeks for this recruiting class? I don't know of any names specifically. I don't think it's unfair to think that Texas has definitely got to 
re-recruit some of these guys. Not that they've lost them, but you've got to show, like, hey, despite these coaches going, despite these new coordinators, despite all this, you should still come to Texas. That's the responsibility of the coaches. That's why they're out recruiting this week and trying to get in front of their players' faces. I'm sure Tom Herman's trying to tell what he can to these players and stuff like that. Uh, I, I I don't think it's it's not a dire situation, but it's it's change. It's right. uh, it, it, this is going to be a logical following from all this coordinator change and from that because I mean you don't like seeing instability at a place where you want to stay for four years. We're not quite in the gif jif of the dog sitting in the room that's covered in fire no nowhere near that this is fine we're not quite there yet but i do think the coaches do have to i mean they just have to go out and do their jobs and recruit i think that's why it may be a small positive that brian carrington's on the road because he is a good recruiter uh andre coleman it'll be interesting to see how he recruits on the road a wide receiver position uh I, i think that it'll be there's texas is going to be able to maintain guys it just has to go out and do it um and i think getting these hires done decently quickly at least the main ones will go a long way into helping that i'm with you 100 percent. all right should we talk some texas hoops yeah winning program man. winning program seven and one after last night tuesday night's 67 57 victory over uab uh, big day for Andrew Jones, tied a career high with 20 points, 6-for-8 from downtown, uh, leading the Longhorns to the 10-point victory over UAB. Texas is now 7-1, and one, which is the best eight-game start in the five-year reign of Shaka Smart as the coach at Texas. Not a whole lot of talented teams that the Longhorns have had to go up against, but at least they're not losing to the subpar teams on their schedule in the non-con. Uh, next game for the Longhorns coming up this Sunday against Texas A&M. Now, they're bad. a <laughs> is really bad. And Shaka Smart, I don't know how much we've talked about it on this podcast. I'm not a believer in Shaka Smart. I don't think he should be the coach right now. I think if it was football or baseball, you know, a sport that more people cared about here in Austin, uh, Shaka Smart with his success or lack of success, I think he'd already be fired. Uh, and probably if he didn't have a huge buyout, he'd also probably be fired at this point. But if Shaka Smart wants to save his job a little bit. And once again, A&M is really bad, so this is not going to go down as an impressive win for Texas, but this would be a bad loss for UT. And even if you're not a diehard Texas Hoops fan or pay attention to the basketball program, you want to win every time Texas and Texas A&M square off, regardless of sport. This is a game that Shaka Smart needs to win to prevent Longhorn fans from really hating this dude. Yeah, this is... So I think you can kind of look at this game in two different ways. You can... Remove the names from the jerseys and just, you know, what doesn't matter what school you're playing. You can just look at this team. Texas doesn't really have a quality win outside of the Purdue win. I think everything else, I mean, they had a chance at Georgetown, and that that win's going to look worse and worse with uh, their major suspensions coming down these mm-hmm. past couple days. Uh, but, you know, they're still 7-1. and one. They're still stacking wins against what is a very poor non-conference schedule, and that's that's what you need to do. Uh, Texas A&M is really bad. What they've lost to a hotel chain, Fairpoint, wasn't that the name? Fairfield. Of it? Fairfield. Excuse me. <laughs> that they is lost, a hotel, though, right? They lost to a uh, an academic peer in Harvard, uh, and they lost to Temple. They so, lost to the Jews. So this, on Saturdays, man. And they lost really badly to uh, Gonzaga, and I'm sure Drew Timmy had a great time putting some buckets up against the Aggies. Mm-hmm. So if you take Texas A&M off these jerseys, this is Buzz Williams' first year. 
Uh, the roster has undergone some significant changes. This is not a very good basketball team. You remove A&M from the equation. This is not a basketball team that Texas should be losing to, especially at this point in Shaka's tenure. Now you add A&M to the jerseys, all that. Neutral site. This is, I mean, let's face it, Texas A&M has a more recent NCAA tournament win, I believe, than Texas does. Yep. And I, they weren't too far. They either, what, they won a conference tournament or their regular season in the past couple of years. So this is a team that, although it's got a new coach and a new staff, has entertained more success than Texas has in recent years, you can go a long way towards maybe, I don't I mean, in-state recruiting for basketball is a little bit different than it is for football, right. but you can go a long way towards being able to show guys that if they're going to consider a program in Texas instead of going to North Carolina or Duke or Kentucky or anything like that, that Texas is a program you should consider, that even though Buzz Williams is early, that Shaka Smart is here, and if you can beat this team, you obviously, you get the rivalry points. You get some brownie points with the people at Texas, and you get a win your program should have this season. It's kind of a lose-lose type of game. Now, don't take that as I don't want to play the Aggies in football because I do. But beating the Aggies in basketball this year isn't going to do anything for your resume. Losing to the Aggies this year is going to give you a bad loss on your resume, and it's also going to put your coach even more on the hot seat. Like, if Texas wins this game, even if they win kind of handily on Sunday, it's not going to save Shaka Smart's job. Like, the jury's still going to be out on him, and the jury's still going to be out on this Texas basketball team. And that'll be the case going into conference play, because the non-con is just so bad. There's only one kind of tough game left after this, and that's at Providence. And Providence is just a middle-of-the-road Big East team. So... We're not going to know that much about UT Hoops until conference play begins. But, uh, yeah, just yeah, don't lose this game. This would be a bad loss for you. And, once again, even if you're not a Texas basketball fan, you know when Texas plays A&M and those are games you want to win. If you're a head coach, those are games you feel like you have to win to remove yourself from the hot seat or at least prevent your name, uh, prevent yourself from getting on the hot seat. And you're right. the talent. I mean, Texas is just a better team. But, Texas was a lot better than McNeese State, and that was a two-point game at the Irwin Center last week. We've seen, well, insert sport here at the University of Texas kind of play down to their competition. You do that against a rival at a neutral site, uh, that could be a bad recipe for the Longhorns come Sunday. But I'm excited, man. I, mean, I love when these two teams play. They had a chance to play in the NCAA tournament a couple of years ago. Uh, a half-court shot by Northern Ugh. Iowa ruin that sorry to bring that up joe and to every How texas basketball fan out there easiest way to ruin a trip to miami yeah uh you were there I, well no the, the i forget where the game was i was in miami at the time and yeah that was i was in a hotel room i'd just gotten off a cruise ship i was sunburnt hungover and feeling terrible and it did not measure against the pain of seeing your team go down in the NCAA tournament in your senior season, in your senior year. Where was that? I remember where I was watching that game. I'm trying to remember where that first round matchup was even played. And then they go and blow the game to A&M in the most epic fashion in NCAA history. Was it in Oklahoma City? It might have. Sound right? It might have been. Okay. Yeah, that sucked. That sucked. 
But, uh, yeah, first time they played in hoops in a while. Man, Texas and A&M played some great basketball games in the 2000s when both programs were kind of top 15, top 20 teams every single year. Uh, unfortunately, not able to make this one. Are you going up there on Sunday? I'll be there. You're going to be at Dickies. That's cool, man. Yeah, sister, Adding a new arena to the list. Sister's got to graduate college this weekend, so I'm stuck hanging out with her. That, that, that's a bummer. Uh, uh, I guess I'm happy for her. That's probably not a bummer. Hopefully my parents didn't hear that. All right, Joe, before we get out of here, man, we got to do our lock of the week. And because, well, just about every college football game being played this week, not even just about, every single college football game being played this week is a conference championship game. We'll get into the conference championship conversation. Uh, The Big 12 championship game, Baylor and Oklahoma, we could start right there, Saturday morning. OU ranked number six, Baylor ranked number seven. Both teams Still with a very clear path to make it to the college football playoff. You know, if LSU takes care of business against Georgia, then and if Oregon beats Utah, then the winner of the Big 12 is going to be in the Final Four, barring something ridiculously crazy happening. Uh, Oklahoma, an 8.5-point favorite. We all remember how crazy cool the first matchup was in Waco. Baylor up 28-3. to Oklahoma, the big comeback to steal the victory. Uh, you have a feel for this game in the Big 12 championship on Saturday. I think it's going to be Oklahoma, and let's consider that the first time these two these two teams played, C.D. Lamb did not play. That's true. Good point. And C.D. Lamb's a really damn good wide receiver. Let's also consider that Charlie Brewer just doesn't seem 100% himself. Gary Bohannon was able to play a significant amount against Kansas. They got a lot of reps for him. They got Charlie Brewer off the field. I haven't really checked to see what Charlie Brewer's status is. I'm sure they haven't really said anything, but... Oklahoma's been here before. Yeah. CeeDee Lamb's been here before. And though Jalen Hurts technically hasn't played in a Big 12 title game, he's what is he most notable for? His his last year in the in the SEC title game against Georgia. This is a guy in a team that really knows what the situation is. Lincoln Riley knows the situation. And I really do think that Oklahoma is uh, going to make it, what, this will be number five? Five in a row. 13 overall, right? Or 12. Let's be 12 or 13 Big That's 12 titles. Uh, way more That's than anybody lot. else, yeah. So I, I, I think it's going to be Oklahoma. I really, I'd really, i like to think that Baylor can play a similar game to how they did uh, against Oklahoma the first time, but Oklahoma just ran over this team in the second half. Yeah, I think Baylor missed their chance mm-hmm. to beat Oklahoma this year. And I'm with you. This is just OU's game. They thrive in this game. They've been here before. What about this? Real quick, unfortunately, we're not talking talking about Texas playing a game, but do you think it's better for Texas if one of these teams wins on Saturday? I mean, obviously, you don't want either of these teams to win on Saturday, but that's just, it has to happen. Uh, do you think Longhorn fans should be rooting for someone in particular this weekend? I don't think there's a really good outcome here for for Texas fans at all. I mean... Scipio Tex, who on the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast, I don't know if he's ever said this, but he's written this countless times. Don't root for Oklahoma, no matter what the situation is. His opinion is don't root for Oklahoma. The thing is, Oklahoma has been here for a while, and it's, I don't, you know, unless they win a playoff game finally, they're still kind of where they've been in the past few years. Not to say they've plateaued at all, because I think their defense has definitely improved this year, but they are where they're at right now. However, if Baylor were to win a Big 12 title game, like you mentioned, that would match the amount of Big 12 titles Texas has with three. Yeah. It would show a 
way better trend line for a program, I believe, in Waco than the one in Austin. And it would just make life in the Big 12 that much more difficult for Texas in the next few years, assuming Matt Rule stays there. Right. That's that's the fear for me because Oklahoma is always going to be there. And you hate to go further down against your rival when it comes to conference championships or when it comes to accolades. I mean, you, you can't stand that. But OU already steals recruits from Texas. Like Baylor, they did for a little bit with Art Bryles, but over the past couple of years, they haven't been much of a threat to Texas on the recruiting trail. If they win the Big 12 and they get into the college football playoff, then all of a sudden, yeah, Matt Rule can make a pretty damn strong argument because he's got skins on the wall. He's got the resume to prove that his program is in a way better spot than Texas is right now. So, yeah, I don't know. There's no right answer. I tend to agree with Paul. Like, there's never a good time to root for Oklahoma. But, man, I just, I don't know. Baylor being really good, sustainably good, would be very bad for this Texas team. And I'll tell you what, Joe, I'm going to go ahead and get my lock of the week right now because it will transition or it will kind of get to my next point. I think Oregon's going to beat Utah. Really? I don't think, like, they're not only going to cover the six and a half, I think they're going to win this game outright. I just think this moment's going to be a little bit too big for Utah. And I think it's going to come down to the fourth and final playoff spot is going to come down to the winner of Baylor, Oklahoma, because I think LSU is also going to take care of Georgia. So you're just throwing locks out everywhere here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Big, big time locks guy. We only get one, and that's probably for the best. I mean, if you're fading my picks, then you probably wish I would give every game on this podcast. But I really think that fourth and final playoff spot is going to come down to the winner of Baylor and Oklahoma. Which I guess good for the conference, but you know, I hate it. that. I'm not a conference rooter. I, know I was about that was what I was about to go into. Oh, this just, is not. I, I can't stand that. America's heartland does not root for it for. But some its people brethren, do. You know, like, some people do in well, this. Conference. Yeah, some people to the east of where we uh, currently sit. I, I really want this to happen for Kyle Whittingham. I really kind of want this to happen for the the little guy of college football. Um, I like Utah. I really like that team. I like that program. Yeah, it's it's a fun team to They're watch. They're hard to hate. What they do They've in the Pac-12. Never done anything wrong. Exactly. What they do in the Pac-12 is entertaining. Oregon, I don't mind, but I don't like. Uh, so I'm gonna disagree. I think Utah wins it. I think knowing that you know, n- knowing that this team has the defensive capability to match up with Justin Herbert and that they can get by on offense. I don't know if they'll excel because Oregon has a solid defense, but I think that they can get by. Okay. And I think Utah can can eke this one out. I don't think they're going to cover – I see seven. I don't think they're going to cover that at all. Okay. But I think Utah can eke this one out. Do you and think make Utah their... is in a win-and-end situation, win-and-your-end situation? Because my fear is – I think if Utah and Baylor win, I think Utah is going to get in. But I think if Oklahoma beats Baylor, even if Utah wins, unless they blow out Oregon, I think the brand that is Oklahoma is going to move the Sooners in above the little guy that I, you just talked about. I think so, too. We saw it play out, what, five years ago? I think it's going to happen. I think if it goes the way you're talking about, it would play out that way again. And we're going to get some great conversations about who's better, the Big 12 or the Pac-12. Yeah, you got to root heavy for Utah. If you're an OU hater, a Baylor hater – you got to hope Utah not only wins, but wins by like three touchdowns. And you have to hope that the Big 12 championship game, regardless of who wins, is close, unless you want the Big 12 in. Unless you want a Big 12 team in the college football playoff. But, I mean, I don't think it matters if it's Utah, OU, or Baylor. If they're playing Ohio State, I, I, does that really matter? Like, it's cool to make the playoff. It's a great accomplishment for sure. But, like, I feel like whoever 
gets that four spot is going to get run out of the building pretty quick. Yeah, Ohio State and LSU, those are easily the two. And I'm sorry, Dabo, Clemson's not as good as those two. Uh, I'm, I disagree with you there. We're, we'll save that for next week, man, but people are sleeping on Clemson too much. I, if I had to pick a team to win the title right now, I'd pick Clemson. I, I think I'm in the minority there. I think everyone is deciding between Ohio State and LSU, but I'm not giving up on on Dabo and the defending champs, by the way, guys who have won two of the last three of these titles. Uh, I gave my lock of the week. You have not given yours yet. Do you have a, a conference title game that you feel really good about against the spread? I think LSU can cover seven and a half pretty easy. Yeah, I kind of like that I, too. What, not because LSU is – oh, let me start that over. Because Georgia's just not going to score on LSU. Jake Fromm is eh, – uh, they're missing, I think, their best one of their best wide receivers because of some kerfuffles and clean old-fashioned hate against Georgia Tech. I don't think it's going to be a thing where it's like, you know, 58 to 50 or something like that. I think it may be something like 24-16 and they cover that 7.5. You think it's going to be an 8-point game and that's your lock of the week? Well, yeah. The the line's only 7? The line's 7.5. I don't think it's going to be a – I don't think it's going to be a – Huge blowout, high-scoring game because Kirby Smart has shown he can play defense pretty yeah. well against whoever they match up against, except South Carolina for some reason, yeah. whatever. Oh, that was, that was, was more some, the offense. Yeah, though, that right? was Jake Fromm, which, I mean, there's an issue again. So, yeah, I think LSU, Joe Burrow, the magical season continues, and uh, I think he locks down the Heisman that week. Number two scoring offense, number two scoring defense in college football with that LSU-Georgia game. It's going to be fun. A lot of great games. Obviously bummed that Texas won't play, but every conference championship game except for the ACC I think is worth watching. I think it's pretty intriguing. No no faith in the Hoos? 28-point dogs. How is that possible for a conference title game? I'm not saying the line is wrong. Like Clemson should be four touchdown favorites, but... That's just how bad the ACC is. Yeah, that, uh, don't sleep on them, though. Yeah. Don't it, sleep on them. If it's basketball, I won't sleep on them. Football, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep on UVA. Duke is looking good, as is UVA. Yeah, Coach K and Tony yeah. Bennett. Yeah. Uh, they coaching football now. All right, I think we're done. We good? I think we got it we're all. Good. All right, thank you guys, as always, for listening. Always appreciate the support. Uh, feel free, and please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Also, the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast with Kevin and Paul. Uh, thanks again to our sponsors, Audiovisual Consultations and Altstat Beer. Send us an email at everyone gets a trophy at gmail.com. That's every the number one gets a trophy at gmail.com. Follow Joe on Twitter at josephcook89 and check out the work that he does at insidetexas.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Brad Kellner and listen to the midday program Midday with Trey and BK. Weekdays from 11 to 1, about to be back to 10 and 1. By the way, or 10 to one By the way, Joe Cook will be filling in for me on Friday with Trey, so I'll be sure to listen to that as well if you're here in Austin. All right, guys, uh, thank you all as always for listening. Appreciate the support. Until next time, you all be good and hook them.